welcome to Climate Optimus. I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. Today, we're going to be talking about the much-debated topic of carbon footprints, its history, its value, and our two cents on how we should view it. Before you get into the reason for hope here, I'd just like to complain briefly. Okay. You know, when we do these episodes, I spend a lot of time doing research on the internet, and in almost every search about climate change-related topics, ExxonMobil ads pop up as the first search result, and they're carefully disguised to make it look like a reputable source, and it happens on both Microsoft and Google. It's just super disheartening to see these tech giants who made big climate pledges and claim to take it seriously just being a megaphone for big oil's propaganda. It's the almighty dollar, man. They have more purchasing power than uh, climate stewards, I think. They might. (laughs) (laughs) It is frustrating, though, because if the tech giants really were going to walk the talk, they shouldn't be publishing these ads. We know that these fossil fuel companies are disingenuous. You know, BP had their bullshit beyond petroleum marketing campaign, which we'll talk about. We know it's just all they're doing is trying to paint themselves in a better light. So we ignore the fact that they're spending all this money to undermine action on, you know, the biggest crisis facing the world. All right, I'll shut up now. But I just, I needed to rant. I needed to get that off my chest. I'm glad you did. I think if you, obviously, it just takes a quick look at the numbers to see what they're, what they're doing with their money and, and where they're still getting all their money from. And, you know, it, it will dispel the the kind of false narrative they're trying to, to push pretty quickly, <laughs> what yeah. the reality is. The problem is a lot of people don't have time or, sure. you know, they're scanning through and so they don't. Anyway, I digress. Let's get to some hopeful stuff. From Todd. that, yeah, we should, we should jump right into this reason for hope. So the electric pickup race is on. <laughs> race is on and here comes pride in the backstretch. Heartaches are going to the ends. You remember that song? I, I do. It was made famous by George Jones originally. And then, of course... You know, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I I think listeners have learned to appreciate your education of us on, on country music and, you know, its history. And Well, I know it's your thing. Uh, <laughs> it... Uh, <laughs> And then again, of course, I think made popular in our generation by Sawyer Brown in the 90s. Anyway, back to the EV pickups. I don't know if people know this, but of course they tout it on every ad that comes on TV for a pickup these days that they're the best selling vehicle in the U.S. auto market, which we could probably look at that as maybe being problematic in of itself, but we won't go into that. Uh, The top three vehicles in 2021 are all pickups, right? And I know you're a huge fan of gigantic pickups. <laughs> I think that a pickup truck that gets used as a pickup makes a lot of sense. You see, sure, you know, contractors and farmers and ranchers have trucks that they're that they're using, right? They're working yeah. trucks. But I think probably it's easy to spot them, right? Yeah, it's easy to spot the ones that are doing the work. They're banged up. Yeah, they look like they run into a couple things. And then, and then on the other side, you have all these folks who think they need a pickup truck to like haul a, a single piece of plywood from Home Depot once a year, <laughs> and and that's where it's a little disheartening. Where maybe oh, they're status symbols, 
for the most part, the ones that I see. I remember stepping off a plane, oh, this is years ago, and, and hopping in a cab with a guy from Australia and just driving out of LAX, you know, he was like, you Americans really like your big cars and pickups, don't you? You know, because we were just surrounded <laughs> by him, you know? And uh, right. you don't think of it, you get used to it, but to an outsider, it looks bananas. Yeah, I, I would agree. But it, I think you're getting into this. It's great to see that there's a push to get EB pickup trucks out there. Yeah. You know, these big manufacturers are are shifting to these electric pickups, which is, again, I keep saying this, I just would have never have guessed that, that they would have made this switch so quickly. I thought they would fight this thing tooth and nail to the very bitter end, but they've really jumped on board. General Motors, for instance, the Hummer EV is... Uh, <laughs> I bet you Which, didn't think you were to hear those two words paired together anytime soon. Is it kind of a contradiction of itself, maybe, to have a Hummer EV? I don't know. But I guess if you're going to get a Hummer, probably get an EV one if you, if you care about <laughs> the, the environment. And it, it's not cheap. You know, it's 108 k It's not a budget item. And in contrast to that, the Chevy Silverado EV starts out at like 42 k That'll be on sale in 2023. The high-level trim version of it sold out in 12 minutes. So they're not having any problem selling these things. No, I think the demand has been pent up. And so it's exciting to see. It really is. And then we have the Ford Lightning. I want like a sound sound effect every time we say Ford Lightning. We could talk to our big sound team and uh, make that happen. You all in the producer's booth over there, can you make that happen? (laughs) Okay. But the Ford Lightning is going to be starting out at 30K, which I would have never have guessed that it would be that reasonable in cost. They have 200K in reservations that are already sold, and they're planning to double production to 150K a year. I know that some of those trucks, like the Ford Lightning, for like contractors, you can power tools and all kinds of stuff from these things. So really cool, you know? And the Rivian is a release now. It had about 55,000 pre-orders. So doing well. Tesla's Cybertruck has faced delays. What do you think about Tesla and delays? I think the two words should be hyphenated. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I own a Tesla, but yeah. Right. You You know, to be fair, I think Tesla has come out with some of the most exciting electric vehicles, you know, in the last decade or more. But maybe what we've seen here is that these oldie goldies like GM and Ford, there's got to be some benefit of having, you know, mass manufacturing cars for a hundred years or whatever the heck it is now, right? where it's going to take a new company a while to kind of be able to pump out vehicles like that. So maybe we shouldn't be too critical of Tesla. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to diminish their accomplishments. I mean, whether you like Elon Musk or not, the fact that Tesla entered the market and has done what they've done. Yeah, has been instrumental for you know scaring these other manufacturers into action. So kudos for sure, regardless of whether you know you're a fan of Mr. Musk. Yeah, and this Cybertruck has over a million pre-orders. So that's crazy. <laughs> it is bananas. It is indeed. So in our you know main topic today, carbon footprint. I thought it might make sense to start out and just talk a little bit about the history, which I don't know about you, Todd, but I, until I did the research for this episode, 
didn't appreciate the history of the term carbon footprint. Yeah, I didn't either. Some studied folks may know, but the fossil fuel company British Petroleum actually took the term carbon footprint. It it was coined earlier by some folks in Canada, but they took this term carbon footprint and basically built an entire marketing campaign around it in the early 2000s. You know, I think the tab was about $100 million. They work with this ad agency and the whole intent behind it was to shift the blame of climate change away from, you know, these big oil companies and onto the individual. The idea was like, it's us individually that have to address the climate crisis, not the fact that these fossil fuel companies are ensuring that they're supplying all of our energy that we rely upon for doing our activities. You know, they even, you know, release their own carbon calculator. And now, I mean, carbon footprints everywhere, right? I mean, it's just part of our part of our lexicon. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, sadly, this this strategy they employed was really just mimicking things that Big Tobacco's done and the Don't Litter campaign of the 1970s, where you had a group called Keep America Beautiful, which ironically was a just a front for industry. And they, posing as an environmental group, started this whole campaign of like, don't litter, right? And the whole point of that was... Yeah, they were the, the ironized Cody thing. Do you remember that? Yeah. Like the crying Native American. And I don't even think that dude was Native American. I don't know if anybody really knows that, but he's like Italian or something. He's like <laughs> just an actor. But they did that whole ad campaign, right? With the crying Native American and everything. That was them. Yeah. And, and you know, hugely successful again. It was all about, hey, the reason that there's all these plastic bottles laying around is, is you and I. It's not the fact that our beverages are only being, you know, put out in plastic bottles. bottles. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an old playbook. You know, an interesting sort of tidbit, MIT did a study of of carbon footprints, you know, not long after BP started this campaign. And they looked at, you know, the carbon footprints of different sections of society within the US. Mm -hmm. And they actually looked at the carbon footprint of a, you know, a, a homeless person with the idea that that person was living in, you know, shelters and eating in soup kitchens. And this just sort of drives the point home that, you know, the carbon footprint of that person, and this was in 2008, was projected to be 8.5 tons of CO2 per year, which for context is about half of what an average U.S. person, you know, emits in 2020. So, you know, I think the, the point is, that homeless person couldn't do anything about that, right? I mean, that right. regardless of what that person did, they had that carbon footprint tied to them because of the fact that the underlying infrastructure that provides our energy is all fossil fuels. Right. So, now, is MIT like trying to lay the the blame of on the homeless or what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, MIT. Right. Well, no, you're right. It just shows you how much the system you're in affects what your outcomes are going to be, right? Which we, we exactly. will get into more of that later. So some of our listeners might be familiar with the climate author, Bill McKibben. And you know he came out and kind of made the case against carbon footprints. Uh, his, his quote, your famous quote was, say you have a certain amount of time and money with which to make change. You know, mm-hmm. Call it X. Since 
that's what mathematicians call things. The trick is to increase that X by multiplication, not addition. Mm. The trick is to take that 5% of people who really care and make them count for far more than 5%. Right. And the trick to that is democracy. I think point being, when we each make efforts to cut our carbon footprint, that's addition and it does make a difference. Right. But we could be making a lot more of an impact through multiplication, i.e. advocacy. Right. So that, you know, that leads into the obvious question of like, well, how should each of us be be thinking about our carbon footprint then? And I thought I'd, you know, inject a little story about my mom and I, because we've had this debate going on about kind of personal action versus advocacy for a long time. Mm-hmm. Em- emphasis that it's a friendly debate, you know, we're, it's amicable. <laughs> there's no, you're not coming to blows or anything or? No, no, there's no fistcuffs. <laughs> um, not beating up my mom. But, you know, her stance has always been lead by example. When the first Honda Insight came out in, in the in the nineties, I don't know if folks remember that. She was yeah. one of the first to buy one. And actually I think you you saw that Honda Insight when they had it. I do remember that car. And before we go into that, when I ta- was talking about you and your mom getting into fisticuffs, I really wasn't worried about her, but <laughs> um i do remember that car it was like a jetsons car it looked like it was like a kind of a spaceship yeah it wasn't designed for looks it was cool that they had it though they i mean that was 20 years ago probably now yeah longer than that i think it got on the order of you know 60 miles per gallon right which Which was amazing at the time indeed i mean still is yeah that was sort of their starting point in terms of trying to make purchases that help reduce their you know their carbon footprint their climate impact you know since they've evolved into owning two electric vehicles they've put up two kilowatt of solar panels they have a geothermal setup for heating and cooling their house right and the beauty has been i've watched my mom and dad do these things and my mom is always you know engaging with folks and talking about what they're doing and people follow you know like I bet where they live out in rural Eastern Oregon that there's at least 20, you know, EVs out there that are a result of their advocacy. So, you know, it's clearly making a difference. That's cool. They kind of set an example and people saw the practicality of it and they saw that it it could work, which is cool. I mean, when they had that first car there, it was kind of like a unicorn out there in the Baker Valley. (laughs) For sure. You know, no, for sure. It's like, what the heck's that thing? Is that somebody pedaling in that thing, like Flintstones or what? Well, and the novelty of it, to that very point, you know, people would come up to her in like grocery store parking lots and want to see under the hood. You know, you'd have these like big construction guys coming over and wanting to see what this little thing was. So, you know, her actions clearly had, had an impact. And, sure. you know, on my side, I've spent a ton of time lobbying legislators. You know, I probably reached out hundreds of times via calls, letters, and emails advocating for climate action. And so while we continue to debate, I think the reality is we're both right. Mm-hmm. Individual actions make a positive impact, especially when when they're visible and when you're making an attempt to talk about the success of those purchases. Right. I do think the other value is it, you know, it helps us get smart on what solutions are out there to solve sure. the climate crisis. So I, I think the caveat to all this, the the but, is just that individual actions alone 
aren't going to be enough. They're going to help us make progress. They're going to, you know, help drive demand for these like EV trucks that we're talking about. But on their own, given the time frame we have, they, they aren't going to be enough. For sure. I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think some of it goes back really to the first question that you asked me in the first episode of this podcast and my answer to that question about why are you doing this? And my answer was, I don't want people out there like me to feel like they're imposters, right? Because it's easy to feel like you're an imposter and everybody feels compromised. And some of this to me, like personal action is about momentum and it's a step-by-step process for people. And so they start at these personal things that they can do, but they start changing the way they purchase stuff. And I think it builds momentum and builds confidence. And I know you've talked to me about this, Jason, where people people talk to you about, I, I don't feel comfortable to call my congressman. I don't feel like I know enough. And I think when people do these things, they start to feel like they're part of a community and part of a larger larger picture. And they start to feel more confident to be able to affect change in advocacy. And so for me, that's my hope about personal action is that it it leads people to to become part of a bigger community, find common ground and do bigger things. Yeah, I I think you're spot on. I think it it does build momentum and it and it creates some of that confidence that you need cuz you know, for me calling up a member of Congress when I'm upset about something that's gone on or not gone on in terms of climate action, it's second nature. I mean, I have every one of my legislators numbers programmed into my phone and I just pick it up and I call and I leave a message. But that's a muscle that I had to build over time. Sure. You know, it wasn't something that I had day one. And and yeah, I think making climate smart purchases not only has an incremental impact and can influence others, but it does, it creates that foundation. I think that's a you know great way of putting it. Well and another thing too people should realize if you got all the Congress people to share probably 75% of the messages that they receive and you listen to those, you probably wouldn't feel unqualified to make a call. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's very true. Very true. (laughs) Well, you know, it's probably a lot of angry people shouting, you know, into a phone. uh, So I wouldn't feel unqualified to make a call or write a letter to a congressperson. That's a great point. And I think that's a nice segue into kind of the need for us to have advocacy to, to meet our climate targets. And so I think this is interesting to kind of look at it a little bit from a data side. So, you know, if we look at the different sources of, of global emissions, the different categories, you know, individual decisions control a subset of those, right? You have road and air transportation is roughly, you know, 14% of global emissions and making decisions about our transportation methods, et cetera, can affect that. Uh, residential buildings, the homes we live in, 11% you know, of global emissions. And again, by shifting to renewables, making our homes more efficient, that, that can contribute to that. And then you know, the other category that we have some control over is the land use piece. Agriculture, forestry collectively account for about 18% of emissions, mm-hmm. about 14% of those, you know, 14% total rather, is meat. And so by eating lower on the food chain, again, we, we can we can move the dial there a little bit. Mm-hmm. There are ways that we as individuals today have some control, but that leaves about 60% of our emissions conservatively, because 
the reality is we can't reduce any of those categories to zero. So conservatively, we're talking about, you know, over 60% of our emissions that are out of our control, you know, things like heavy industry, things like, you know, deforestation. So in that respect, it's going to take advocacy to, to move the dial on those things. And, you know, I would argue to accelerate the transition, you know, of transportation, residential buildings, et cetera, to, to carbon free. And so, Mm-hmm. You know, it's helpful to look at, I think, some of the things that have been accomplished via advocacy. I mean, we have this renewable energy boom that's going on, you know, across across Europe, you know, here in the United States. And that really, you, know, you got to credit the advocates that have pushed for things like tax incentives for renewables and research dollars for renewables. And definitely. And that, without a doubt, I mean, sure, there's been some technological improvements, but those are a result of there being calls for a different way to go in terms of energy. There's been a ton of great work around the world in terms of halting more fossil fuel infrastructure, very much advocacy driven. Right. You know, we talk all the time about tax credits for EVs on this podcast. And that was absolutely driven by advocates saying, hey, to make this transition in the time we need to, we need to level the playing field. So there's a, a good opinion piece I read in The Guardian by Rebecca Solnit. Hopefully, I'm not butchering her name. She can reach out if I have. Um, she, she posed the question that I liked about this idea of, you know, are we citizens or consumers? You know, she talked about a mm. consumer being someone who characterizes themselves by sort of what they buy, what they watch, consume, where she talked about a citizen as somebody who views themselves as part of, you know, civil society you know, as actors in a political system, sort of the, you know, what they do. And she made this nice kind of comparative where she said, you know, hey, where she lives, she can ride in bike lanes because somebody advocated to get those bike lanes put in place, right? Right. She's able to purchase renewable power because somebody pushed, you know, to have that utility create a renewables program. So... I liked her her lens on that. And, you know, in my mind, it's like, we should all find ways to be citizens, right? Right. Definitely. That kind of reminds me of a Chomsky quote that I heard that always kind of stuck in my mind, uh, basically talking about people's choices and about how markets restrict choices. And, you know, he said, you know, mass trans- transportation is not a choice offered on the market. Uh, if you <laughs> right. If you want to go home today... You know, the market does offer a choice between a Ford and a Toyota, but not between a car and a subway, right? And right. so it's very true that, you know, when you're a consumer, you only have a certain limited number of choices. But as a citizen, you kind of have, that's where you, that's where you can really create through advocacy, you know, a higher level of choice. Yeah, absolutely. So given that we've been talking about carbon footprint here, we haven't talked necessarily much about kind of what the pieces of your carbon footprint are. Before we get into that, I just wanted to give some context on per capita greenhouse gas emissions. This data I'm drawing from here is as of 2016, you know, you've got nations, you know, at the top of the emissions chart, like Canada, you know, the US and Australia, you know, all, you know, around 15 tons per year or more. Mm-hmm. You go to our friends in in Europe and, you know, not surprisingly, they're doing a lot better. You know, Germany's around you know, eight and a half tons per year, the UK even better at around 5.5 tons. If we look at, you know, our neighbors in China, they're at about, you know, seven tons. And then you go to countries like, 
India and it's, you know, only one and three quarters tons wow. you know, per individual. So I think it's worthwhile just to have that context as we talk about carbon footprint, that there is a vast variation, you know, and clearly in my mind, a ton of opportunity for countries like US and Canada and Australia to shrink our per capita footprint. Yeah, the disparity there between like the US at 15 and, you know, India just less than two. It's pretty amazing, right? It is. Um, And, you know, even the UK, the difference between the US and the UK is kind of striking. I was interested in this, in this BBC article about the, you know, the biggest pieces of reduction when we're talking about, you know, personal reductions in carbon footprint. And they have a a chart here that has kind of your average reduction, you know, in tons of of CO2 equivalent. And living car free was 2.04 tons and owning a battery electric car was 1.95. So really, it really goes to show you how great, you know, an electric car purchase is. It's almost the equivalent of just not having a car, uh, <laughs> which I thought was pretty staggering, really. Yeah. And then the next one that jumped out to me, and we've talked about this before, is, you know, one less long haul flight per year is 1.68 tons in reduction, which is like just a little bit less in some ways than, than driving an electric car for a whole year. Of course, we talked about carbon offsets, which can help with that too in, in one of our other episodes. Purchase of renewable energy was about 1.6 tons, which you can do that. Jason and I do that here in the Pacific Northwest. Obviously, it's going to be harder depending on you know what's available to you, right? And that's where you know advocacy comes in, create more available renewable energy. This is a great graphic and we'll definitely have it linked on our website and i know it was developed probably with a european uh right audience in mind so the numbers may not be quite the same but it at least is a good gives you a good indication of what the big buckets are right and then of course as we've as we've discovered here lately in some of our past episodes just eating lower on the food chain is another big one and this chart shows at 0.8 so pretty big and i think the cool thing about the personal uh, choices here is that, you know, if you're already going to be buying a car, the shift is not much to just look at buying electric. If you're already buying energy, <laughs> which you are, and you have the ability to buy renewable, then it seems easy to make that choice. You're already going to eat food. So if you can just shift a little bit about what you're eating, it can make a huge impact. It's kind of like going on a diet. And it's like the successful ones are the ones where people kind of make changes, life changes about how they eat that are going to last the rest of their lives rather than trying to go on some kind of fad diet that they'll never be able to maintain. And that's the kind of way I look at these personal choices with climate is when you just kind of shift your life choices a little bit, you know, you can make a long-term change and long-term impact. For sure. I think that's a great way to put it. So as we, you know, indicated, we'll have this, this graphic on, on our website. I think it's, it's a great way to kind of visualize where there are opportunities to, to make a difference personally. And then for those who, you know, haven't taken the time and are interested, we did a little bit of research on carbon calculators. They're, you know, kind of a dime a dozen. Uh, but after trying, you know, probably six or seven different ones, 
the one that I think we'd like to recommend is the cool climate calculator that was created by uh, University of California, Berkeley. And, you know, it accounts for all the goods and services in addition to things like transportation, you know, living and, and diet. You need to have like your average utility costs to plug in, but it's got a really clean interface and kicks out your results in comparison to, you know, the average person. So it kind of gives you the where you're doing well and where there's opportunities for improvement. And, and we'll have the link to that as well, you know, under the episode notes. Pivoting into opportunities for advocacy, just wanted to take a few minutes to kind of highlight some great organizations that, that are out there and encourage you to go and check them out and see, you know, test drive them a little bit, see which ones, you know, maybe fit you best. There's uh, an organization called Citizens Climate Lobby, which I've actually done some some volunteering for previously, so not entirely unbiased, but uh, I love their tagline. It's our solution to climate change, democracy. They're an international organization, huge presence here in the U.S. and Canada. They focus a lot of their work on really getting members educated on how to be advocates and giving them opportunities, you know, to get engaged. And want to make sure I highlight, you know, the fact that there's a carbon fee and dividend that that we talked about previously that was passed in Canada not so long ago. And they were really instrumental, you know, in getting that passed. And of course, nice. we'd love our our folks here in our U.S. Congress to follow that example. But um, right, we'll see. Another great organization is 350.org. It was founded by a group of you know university friends and climate author Bill McKibben. Their focus is on you know preventing new fossil fuel projects from going in divesting from fossil fuels and you know what they call the transition to 100% renewable energy they also have chapters all around the world so you can you know go on and figure out which chapter is closest to you and then you have that opportunity for you know for community so they do a lot of great work as well we got to get bill mckibben on this podcast yeah we'll definitely have to put out an invite there for bill and he can come on and, and talk about 350.org and you know more of the details of, of how they affect change. That'd be awesome. Yeah. The the third one I wanted to highlight is a organization called the Climate Reality Project. And this was started by former Vice President Al Gore. And their focus, similar to Citizens Climate Lobby, is really, you know, recruiting and training and mobilizing folks to be climate advocates. They don't necessarily line up behind a particular piece of legislation but are focused on, you know, getting aggressive climate action and high-level policies that not only accelerate a transition to clean energy, but a, but a just transition. Cool. And they, too, have, you know, international chapters. We got to get Al Gore on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, he'll be, he'll be next. All right. Um, you line that up, Jason. I'll work on it. All right. So... <laughs> Some may be curious because we always end our podcast with Climate Optimists brought to you by Climate Stewards Collective. And some may be wondering, well, what is that? So Climate Stewards is in its infancy, but it too is intended to be a project focused on advocacy. You know, we're eventually hoping to be to a place where we can provide people who, you know, are short on time and not sure kind of where to start on climate action opportunities to make a difference right. through a network of lobbyists, as well as 
individual opportunities to get engaged. And our focus really is going to be on bridging the urban-rural divide. You know, we both grew up in, you know, rural areas. We now live in urban areas. And I think there's a huge opportunity to bring both folks to the table in terms of finding climate solutions and ultimately getting a true coalition of folks to get those passed. So more to come on climate stewards. So what you're saying is people should go to Climate Stewards Collective and donate something on the order of half a million dollars a piece. (laughs) And if you don't, then you're just basically saying you don't care about the future of our children. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, folks are welcome to go visit the page. If you've been to our Climate Optimist podcast page, there's a link over to Climate Stewards that talks about what we're trying to, to accomplish. This all leads to the question, right? What can we do? I think we've given you plenty to do, um, hmm. but yeah, I continue to make climate-friendly purchases and decisions where you can, and and talk about those purchases. And then, you know, your other homework is to you know find an organization that you like if you're not already part of one that provides you know advocacy opportunities and and a community of folks who are also, you know, working to to make a difference. Check out those organizations and see if there's one that that, you know, resonates with you. So, that's a wrap, I think. Thanks for tuning in. You know, come back next week for more climate solutions, reasons for hope, and ways for each of us to make a difference. Climate Optimist is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. That's climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast.